You're listening to an Anazal Ministries podcast. All right, everyone, with spooky season in full swing, we've been talking about the ridiculous. We've been talking about the scary. It is time to talk about the namesake movie of the season. We are talking about the OG Halloween. And for today's drive-in festivities, quickly becoming a, a crowd favorite whenever whenever she's on, I am joined by Sari. What's going on? <laughs> hey, Joe. Thanks for having me back. Yeah. Um... So before we before we dive into the episode, um, we you know have to ask the important questions first first and foremost, and it is Halloween season, so very important question, and there is a right answer. What's your favorite Halloween candy? <laughs> I wonder if that's a different question than what's your favorite candy, um, but <laughs> something that might end up in your bag, like if you're walking around uh, trick or treating, is that what it is? I don't know. Um, I tend to be a Reese's person. I love, I like the peanut butter vibes. Um, but I was also tempted to go grandma style, like, and say Werther's Originals, because I actually love those little butterscotch hard candies. <laughs> I guess I'm an old soul. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. yeah. I, I remember being a kid and getting hardtack candy and being like, Oh, this is gross. Now I love hardtack candy. Um, <laughs> I guess, I guess the joys of getting older. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Reese's are where it's at. Like I said, there is in fact a right answer and Reese's is that right answer. So phenomenal. Yeah. I could have been a snob and said Justin's, you know, those like health food store peanut butter cups. They have those yeah, dark the- chocolate ones that are so awesome. And that's probably more of a grown up thing too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so we're talking about Halloween and the the natural fit was to have was to have you on for this one, Sari. Um, we'll get into it. But um, our, our, our esteemed guest worked on uh, Halloween Two, the Rob Zombie version. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see you since you went back and, and watched the original um, what what all the differences are and what stood out and all of those kinds of things. Um, it's funny how, when you start your journey into a particular genre, what movies hit you first and what movies kind of come later. I actually watched four, five and six before watching the original, uh, Halloween. When we, when did you, uh, first see this? It's hard to remember, honestly. And I, I don't think I've seen any sequels, full disclosure, except for the oh, Rob okay. Zombie ones. So All I right. think I saw the original Halloween maybe 12, 15 years ago. And right. when I was like in my early 20s or whatever. Right. And didn't watch it again till last night. And um, yeah, so... So yeah, because I wasn't born in the 70s. So I <laughs> didn't come right. to it much later. So it's so interesting to watch it knowing what a template it became for so many movies after, you know, it's kind of like, I don't know, seeing uh, Van Gogh after you've been seeing like expressionist paintings your whole life. And you're like, oh, well, this is kind of basic, but that's because it was the original, right? (laughs) Yeah. And maybe that's, and it's elegantly, elegantly simple. So uh, I think that's something we'll probably dig into. Yeah, I... So my my top two directors of all time, and and I, I think even stretching outside of their classics within the genre, Wes Craven, John Carpenter. I think they are two of the most brilliant minds to ever direct, and I I love that phrase, elegantly simple, because they're simple, they're sloppy. But there's there's simple and well done and and crisp, and it's interesting to talk to somebody who's never seen um, any of the sequels and coming at this as a full blown fan. Um, it's actually funny. I I long before I saw Halloween one, I saw um, I I saw it referenced in Scream, and and longtime SG listeners know I am a diehard scream fan. I I love that franchise. And so 
and it's interesting because for my generation, that was Scream. For a different generation, that was Halloween. That that movie that simultaneously broke the mold, but also created this new template for everybody else to walk through. Yeah, this sort of self-conscious horror film, self-aware. <laughs> yeah. And funny. And and bringing humor into that was okay. Yeah. Right. A little more tonally complex. And it's interesting because you you look at those those individual aspects of the film, right? There it's suspenseful. It's scary. It it's got ambiance, all of these things, but a lot of that lives and dies on two points for this movie. John Carpenter's soundtrack and the character performances of the individuals in the movie. Because we're talking about a movie that held the title of highest grossing independent film for quite a long time. I can't like remember. Decades. It was yeah, uh, yeah. It was decades. <laughs> was it was it Blair Witch that knocked it off the the mountain? I think. I think so. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um. And yeah, it's interesting because I was thinking about the fact that like how ballsy like to be the director and be like, I'll just do the score. Like, <laughs> I'll also just do the score. That's not very normal. And I wonder if it was because of the tight budget. Uh, if he's like, well, I'm a musician, like I could just do it. That would be cool. You know, or if he always wanted to do that, or if it was part of the budgetary constraints that he was like, Hey, I'll do the soundtrack too. <laughs> you know, I'll do the score too. And I actually got to see John Carpenter in concert once and he's like an incredible musician. <laughs> you know, he was How played... many people can say that they've seen Wow. I was I'm so lucky to get tickets to this show. I was so lucky. It was in LA and he... It, it was pretty funny because he's pretty old now, you know, he's kind yeah. of balding, but he's still got like long hair with a ponytail. He was wearing sunglasses the whole time. And he's like flanked by screens and like other musicians. And so much of it was him just like pressing a button on the keyboard and then just nodding while clips from his movie played. And everyone was just like all about it. Like people were right. eating it up, you know? Um, he said right. so many good scores, but yeah, I, I heard, so the, like one EP, Mustafa Akkad funded the whole movie, the original Halloween. Yeah. It was like for $350,000, which yeah. wasn't that much money even back then. Um, right. so the stuff they did to like, keep it, keep it simple, you know, like I read that like the crew members were like, it was their cars that were used in the movies and you know, stuff like that. Uh, probably it, they, it was pretty, it's pretty, it's pretty legit how good it looked in the end for that low of a budget, you know, and probably should shout out the cinematographer. I forget his name, uh, but we can look it up. Um, it looks beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. The, it's funny you, I've heard a, um, a couple of different interviews with John Carpenter where he will talk about, um, he'll talk about the kind of what it, what it was like. And he gave the original cut of the movie to a friend to look over without any of the soundtrack in it. And it was returned to him saying it's, it's boring. There's nothing, there's nothing to anything and all of that. And then he added the soundtrack and it tested entirely differently. And, wow. and you don't realize how many, how many, Movies, a John Carpenter did, unless like, like that's your thing. Like if you are into movies and directors and yada, 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 you don't realize like he's his his breadth of talent is outside of just the horror industry. And for a lot of his films, you know, I, I wonder I wonder in the same kind of vein to your question, I wonder if it's a chicken and the egg kind of kind of set, uh, situation with him, if he as a whole always set out to be known for his scores as well as his directing or if Halloween started the process for him and really put him on the map as a composer and musician yeah. as well as this prolific director. Yeah, 100%. And uh, I listened to this one video essay that remarks like, you know, it's a really long time before, other than the opening kill in this movie, it's a really long time before you see a murder. <laughs> and... Yeah there's a long period of time where there's no score and 
then it kicks in during that first kill and it just made it all that more effective because there actually is this like realism of just like this natural just watching this this babysitting play out you know (laughs) but then boom it hits you in the face with all the with all the drama yeah um to go back to the cinematographer is uh dean cundy yes who i guess went on to have a spectacular career i think he shot like jurassic park and stuff um uh, i love one of my favorite scenes visually well obviously all the stuff with the shadows in the dark is incredible like that stuff is hard to accomplish the way there's all these negative shadowy space and then all of a sudden you see you know michael's face it's it's just brilliantly played out but i freaking love the scene where they're driving to babysit and the the cinematographer's got to be in the back seat of the car and the girls are kind of out of focus um their hands are more in focus and there's light because it's sunset coming in the front window and it's creating these um what's it called where there's a lens flare you know and stuff and it just looks beautiful and they're talking about you know if Lori actually like has a crush on a boy and you know and it's sort of this like liminal moment between like the the broad daylight and then into the night you know it's like this in between moment um and it's just so gorgeous looking yeah i don't think i remembered when i when i went back to watch in prep for for today i'm not sure i remembered how much of the movie takes place in the daytime and i know and the first time you see michael it's broad daylight and he's just standing there it's in the distance but yeah just standing around in broad daylight (laughs) yeah there's Uh a it what there was a comparison that that came into my mind with um the last Scream movie that came out. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you saw that uh, Scream 2022, but there is a particular scene where there is a character running full blast towards their towards their house, broad daylight, middle of the middle of suburbia USA. There are seemingly houses, people, cars, all of this stuff, all a- anywhere nearby, and Ghostface jumps out and and stabs her in the middle of everything. And there's just something chilling about the fact that this is in the middle of everything broad daylight this this killer came you know came out and yeah. all of that and and i was fa- i found myself with that similar kind of it added that similar kind of weight watching it to this figure that's just in the middle of everything nobody realizes just who's standing there you know what i mean yeah i feel like that plays off of like that sense of you know you could be that that human experience of like you could be in a big crowd and feel very alone and i think that if the filmmaker can evoke that sense it makes it the more all the more unnerving you know which for Lori, you know she's in i was thinking about that scene that Lori's, you know Lori's in the classroom at one point and it and it was almost like almost unnecessary um and i was thinking like from a like a production standpoint, you have to get all these extras for the classroom. You have to get another location at school, you know, not just these houses. So that's not like the most cost efficient thing. I think there was something important about building her character and her uniqueness as like kind of this smart girl. You know? yeah. uh, and even though you think she's so distracted, she's get, she gets called on in the middle of class and you think, oh, she's not going to know the answer, but she nails it. Like she says the answer perfectly, even though she's like yeah. being stalked. Um, uh, but yeah, that sense of a character feeling kind of alone in who they are and in their skin. Yeah. Yeah. That is an interesting duality. Makes me think of, um, makes me think of Midsommar too, like the classic, uh, I don't know Mm. if you saw that movie, but it Mm -hmm. takes place completely in daylight and it's terrifying. Yeah. 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 Um, it, it is an interesting duality when you look at, when you look at the fact that, she, you know, while she may be the the more straight laced out of the crowd, which is funny if you ever listen to Jamie Lee Curtis give interviews about who she was as an individual during this time, she's way closer <laughs> to her friend who's like the partier and all of that kind of stuff in real life than than the straight laced person. But <laughs> she's she's this this straight laced person, but also has friends and is part of social groups and and it, there's there are always people buzzing around her, but it's shot and presented in a way that makes her feel very isolated 
from anything else. And that I think is really what highlights that ending chase when she starts the final girl circuit of running around and all that and gives more lends more more weight and gravitas to this this figure in a jumpsuit that we don't know anything about you know as as de- the time of this recording the big hubbub right now is halloween ends the last uh, the the blumhouse trilogy and all of that and and uh, you know I, I won't go into that right now but it's whether it's that set of movies or it's rob zombies set of movies or it's the thorn trilogy four five and six or whatever each one of these even even the original halloween two all of these different movies tried to add mythology to this character. Whereas with this one, this one was originally called the babysitter murders because this is just some dude that he wasn't even, he actually wasn't even known as uh, if you look at the credits, he wasn't known as Michael Myers. He was known as the shape, you know, and it's, it was just, Hmm. yeah. And that was always the, the, it wasn't until the second one that he got the name Michael Myers. Yeah. They're going out of their way to make him a, a symbol, you know, like it's mm-hmm. not there's no explanation of why he did the first first murder. No one even asks the question, you know, and, you know, they refer to him as the boogeyman several times. And I think that's a big clue to what the movie's like about, like the the um, when the little boy who doesn't even know what the boogeyman is. But then he's saying, you know, you can't kill. You think you killed the boogeyman? No, no one can kill the boogeyman. You know, like that line is so intentional in what it's trying to convey in terms of meaning, sort of the inevitability of like, I don't know, human evil. Um, uh, It's really, really interesting. Yeah. And uh, yeah, almost every other iteration, Anno kind of tries to add to the mythology. But maybe that's also about sort of the thinking of of the culture, you know, like uh, in the decades to follow there was all this like the psychology of a serial killer was really fascinating to a lot of people and if you get into the psychology of like serial killers you inevitably find out that like their their home life as children was horrific you know like and it's like oh you know the boogeyman it's more this nature versus nurture thing right like it's like boogeymen aren't born they're made you know (laughs) that sort of psychologically dominated thing you know kind of becomes more are prominent. And I know that Rob is was very interested in serial killers and their origins and would read books about them and stuff too. And so you see you see a little bit more of that fleshed out. But that's not what this that's not what John Carpenter um sought to address, you know. Yeah. And that's one of the be- that's one of my favorite things about Halloween that I was introduced to horror through Nightmare on Elm Street. So Freddy was my, originally my guy. But I also grew up in the era of AMC showing on uh, on repeat four, five, and six for Halloween. And so mm-hmm. they were kind of one A and one B for, for the beginning. And then you had Ghostface and so on and so forth. But one of the things that I appreciate the most out of Halloween specifically is you can kind of cherry pick what your preferred timeline is in a way that other movies don't really offer. This is more of like a choose your own adventure sort of sort of situation that we've got going on. Like for me, it's one, two and H2O. That is my timeline. That's my preferred three movies. Um, but, but there's something for everybody for, for honestly, for the true crime enthusiasts out there, then I would absolutely suggest checking out Rob Zombie's, uh, flicks because they really do dive into the psychology of what makes somebody dress up and, and murder people, you know what I mean? And reimagines a lot of the core concepts from the first and second one into this, into this movie and, and kind of builds his own world around that. And that's why I think yeah. he got kind of a kind of an unfair shake at points, even regardless of whether or not that's your bag or not, that's irrelevant. He yeah. pit, he built a world around the movie that he made. It wasn't John Carpenter's world. John Carpenter wanted to make a ghost. He wanted to make a, a, an, an unexplained evil that's just going around and killing people. And in its own way, 
that in and of itself is also terrifying because there is no explanation of why this person did what they did. And, and then to throw in at the end, that little hint of, of supernatural where, you know, I shot him six times and he's, and he's gone, you know, <laughs> and it's gone. <laughs> Can't kill the boogeyman. Yeah. Right. <gasps> One thing that I wanted to highlight with this when talking about this movie is you you have Laurie Strode and I made reference to it before. She is she was the beginning of what became the the next iteration of a great rendition of a final girl in Sydney Prescott from Scream. And and you look at those two characters uh, compared to each other and you can see a lot of similarities where unfortunately around them, they each kind of had their time reinventing what the slasher genre was. And out of those two movies, you then had a series of imitations where yes, there are high points along the way. There are other good examples of final girls. Those aren't the only two. Um, I would say that the two most important to the slasher genre just being honest, but you kind of end up with almost with the very thing that they're trying to avoid. And so, you know, it's, it's interesting that you have somebody who, while they're still show, showing vulnerability and yada, 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 and it's in, in the, the realistic response to if this, you know, masked murderer is chasing you and all of that kind of stuff, but keep their wits about them, act logically strong, all of those kinds of things. And it, it really, it's strong character work in a, in a corner of cinema that might not otherwise be known for strong character work, especially out of women. Totally. Um, yeah, I, I thought the performances, I was really struck when I rewatched last night how the performances were so strong and so natural. Uh, it was really the way that the, the, the women interacted. <laughs> I, I like, I, I debate saying girls are women because actually these actresses, I think were pushing 30 and they're playing like high school <laughs> students, but which seemed, which I guess was okay in the seventies and eighties. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, yeah, their interactions all seem very convincing. Um, Deborah Hill, I guess was the co-writer of the screenplay the original screenplay. And I didn't know that um because and, and you know when you ask questions around like what what does it mean that women are at the center of this um and it's one thing if you think it's coming from just a male perspective but if you think about the co-author being a woman you know maybe there's more to the story um you know with um but but yeah like Lori being kind of more on guard means she is seeing things that other people aren't seeing people who are just like happy go lucky enjoying life like her two girlfriends who are just like their priority is having a good time hooking up you know <laughs> and and Lori's not like you know she's accepted by them and you know she smokes weed in the beginning you know <laughs> so she's like she's connected she's she's not like completely like no fun for me you know um but but she is more intelligent and um and less i don't know i'm kind of hesitant to call her less mature some people see this as her in this movie as being more childlike and there's a reading of the film where michael myers is sort of embodying like the threat of maturity and sexuality and all those types of things i know i i wasn't fully borrow buying that <laughs> interpretation <laughs> yeah you can tell by your face you're not either yeah, but anyway, no, that might have been a word salad that skated over a few different things that I'm sort of thinking out loud about, but I hope some of it right. made sense. Does that any of that like resonate with you? Yeah, yeah. It's mm -hmm. uh so I'm I'm curious, do you know Deborah Hill from something other than being um John Carpenter's partner? No, I actually didn't know anything about her. I just thought John Carpenter oh, wrote okay. this movie and I didn't realize that she had co-written all these scripts with him so that's my okay. that's i'm confessing ignorance here and i'm delighted that right. you know she's from a place i guess she was born in a city called haddonfield new jersey yeah <laughs> so that's fun um yeah 
I was just I was just curious because that that is what I know her from is from all of her work with John Carpenter and and all of that kind of stuff. But I do know that she uh, branched off after the two of them left Halloween. Um, she branched off and started doing some of her own work and and all of that. So I wasn't sure if maybe you knew her from something like that. But yeah, it's uh, it's interesting when you when you pull the layer back because you think of a lot of these and and it's true so much of the time where a lot of these movies only have a male voice in the creation uh part of it um i was always curious about this and i don't know if this is something that 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 you would but in your experience with 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 rob zombie how much of a voice does his wife have because you always see her in every single one of his projects which she's she's a great actress so why not if you're the one that's that's creating the movie why not give your wife a job i mean cool <laughs> but but you see her in all of these in in all of these projects i wasn't sure if she had how much of a voice she has in the project i think their partnership is very very strong i think she is creatively inspiring to him i think she's his his uh you know, he respects her opinion on everything. Um, I think she is, yeah, they're, they're bond. I mean, they've only, he, he's very loyal to her and they've been together a long time now. And you can't say that about a lot of rock stars. So I really respect their partnership. And I think that she is very influential, um, creatively. And, you know, he also really likes, well, we, before we press record, we were talking a little bit about his film, the Lords of Salem. And that centers around witches, and um, he he loves bringing working with women who might be you know past their prime by Hollywood standards. You know he has these he he loves looking working with these these talented women from um, you know from bygone eras. You know and uh, and so that whole movie I think was sort of a um, there's a there's a feminist angle to it with the whole, you know, and kind of a middle finger to the, you know, witch hunts and stuff like that. Um, so, so anyway, uh, but, but to answer your question, yeah, I think Sherry's creative influence is, is really strong, but, That's but awesome also to movie. say they're very, they're very aligned aesthetically, you know? Yeah. They got married yeah. on Halloween together. <laughs> like their anniversary is Halloween. Phenomenal. So. We, we thought about it. We didn't do, we didn't do uh, uh Halloween proper, but, but my wife and I also in that same vein, we, we are both big Halloween fans. So yeah, that, but with, with them, you know, just uh, what, what better time than the present? When's the next time I'm going to have a conversation about ro- the artistry of Rob Zombie? Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, being, I'm going to be pretentious here for a second, guys. Um, I I am an artist. I love creating. I love creating things. I might not draw per se. Um, I couldn't necessarily draw my way out of a paper bag, but I'm a musician. I I host shows. It's a whole thing. And whatever it is, even if I don't like every single piece of art that an artist creates, my respect always goes out to an artist who unapologetically makes their art. If you're going to make art, unapologetically make your art. Do what you're going to do and do it the best you can do it. And and that is something that as you follow Rob Zombie's career, especially if you are into the genre and read the magazines and read the websites and watch the interviews and all of that kind of stuff, you see this tonal consistency where the guy is just him. Like him or not, he's him. And that's something that I know that John Carpenter has been, has stayed pretty vocal about his dislike of the direction that Zombie took these movies. But both of these guys, and I think this probably goes into the, some, of the, some of the butting of heads, but they're both artists who are unapologetically artists that they, uh, for art that they create. And, and that is, I think when you look at and to bring it back to this Halloween, I the you, you brought up the camera shots, but the the timing of the music and the just the the world that you allow for me to buy into 
this is what creates fans. This is this this is the kind of stuff, and this is there's a reason why you look to. I just had a conversation with with uh, uh, on another podcast about Frankenstein, and a lot of the stuff that came out uh, that came out from that one is this is a movie that you can see a lot of its influence in other generations worth of movies. This is the, this movie Halloween is done in a way where you see a lot of these cues done elsewhere. And and all of that, and it all comes from the mind of somebody who is unapologetically an artist, you know. And and honestly, in my in my experience, the artistic types we're the ones that are willing to bring ideas to the table, and and the ones that are willing to look at the look at the world maybe from a different angle or from a look at a situation from a, from a different perspective, and so. I'm always for somebody who who allows for that creative voice to shout from the rooftops. Be damned if other people don't necessarily like the art that you make. Still make it. I love that. Yeah, it's it's so much easy easier to critique than to actually create. I mean, yeah. and to be so um, you know, so brave as to stay true to what your vision is all along the way. That is really, it's a lot, it's not only a lot of work, but it's really hard. And, you know, to, you know, I have the same, <laughs> I think my first, my first impression of Rob was when I was in high school and I, or I don't know, I was a kid. I saw him on MTV Cribs and he had all this taxidermy in his house and stuff. <laughs> and I was like, wow, Rob Zombie's cool. <laughs> <laughs> and you know little did i know i'd be working for him in 10, 10 years later or whatever but um but then getting the the close up on how much he's like okay i've got this band the band's doing pretty good hey i'm going to i'm going to i'm going to tell the record labor i'm going to direct my own music videos yeah. and i'm going to and then i'm going to make movies you know and then it, just having that level of creative control over every aspect of how he's put out into the world is is really impressive it's a ton of work, you know, he, he would even insist on creating his own tour posters, you know, so I'd get like a, you know, Photoshop file for each tour that he would just, he would just bust out, you know, he wanted that, that's something that could be easily farmed out, you know, for the rock record label to hire someone to do stuff, you know, but he insists on that level of, of, um, of control over how he's put out into the world. And, and yeah, right. I'm hundred percent with you. I envy that. I want more of that in my life. <laughs> I want to insist upon creative control. <laughs> right. So. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. And, and it's it's funny though that you look at you look at the tra the trajectory of these these two guys. They are, yeah. there really is a lot of similarity. Yeah, and I honestly think that I honestly see. I mean, I don't know if you see it this way, but I feel like. Rob obviously was hugely influenced by John Carpenter and was, I think, trying to maintain some of the same tone of the original film, like with his yeah. own hybrid stamp on it. But I, I think there was a lot of just like homage going on. Um, he he loves those, you know, those classic movies and you see that influence. So, I mean, whatever their creative differences they might have, I think it's clear that Rob's a fan, you know? Yeah. And, and I think that, that if I'm being honest, it was more precipitated by, um, by, by John Carpenter, because, you know, he has, he has always had a vision of mm -hmm. Michael of, of Halloween being a standalone story, no mythology, mm -hmm. no added stuff, just mm -hmm. a night of terror on Halloween. You know, it'd be like, it would be like if like a decade from now, someone was like, you know what? I'm going to remake House of a Thousand Corpses and give the Firefly family a little backstory. <laughs> and Rob would be like, fuck that. <laughs> Sorry. He would be like, screw that. <laughs> if Could you imagine if somebody went back and that movie of all movies decided that they're going to remake that movie? Oh, for those of you that have no idea what it is that we're talking about, uh, seriously, viewer discretion is advised. But if you like like 70s grindhouse movies and you don't mind uh, gore and lots of it, um, check out House of a Thousand Corpses because it's it's an experience. That's for sure. Uh, 
but but still like even to that point he wasn't a he wasn't very he wasn't taken seriously at first so many different studios passed on the project first before it got it finally got made and it's the same deal that with john carpenter he had a hard time getting traction out the gate you know what i mean and i i do to go back to your point of the influence thing i see tons of influence i mean honestly half of the original movie well i should say the half of the first movie that that rob zombie made was a retelling of halloween one and and you could tell that there was kind of a an overarching influence between one and two from the original one and two and that to me is is cool you know as as somebody trying to pay homage to the original i mean you you look at where it was and i'm one of those apologists for the thorn trilogy for those of you that don't know, four, five, and six are not known for being fan favorites. Um, really, a lot of them are controversial past the first one. Um, but I, I appreciate them for the nostalgia factor. But the reality of the situation is that Halloween was in the direct-to-DVD market when when Rob Zombie came through and and pulled it out of the bargain bin, the Walmart bargain bin. Like, I'm just being honest. Yeah, it actually broke our Labor Day weekend box office record and held on to it until just like last year or something like that. I forget what yeah. what else broke the record, but it did very well. Yeah, yeah. And and we don't have I'll go I'll I'll take that I'll take that ball one step further down the field. We don't have 2018 kills and ends without Halloween one and two from from Rob Zombie. Like him or not, we don't have the 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 new trilogy without him stepping in and having made those movies. Yep. So, so yeah, I mean, this is one of those movies, guys. So, it, you know, we we tend to do uh, recommendations, but the only recommendation that I can give is watch this movie on Halloween night. Get get the ambiance. Honestly, you, what you do is if you're in an area that has a high trick or treat, uh, trick or treating uh, traffic, you stick the bowl outside with a sign that says "Take your own," and then you've got the ambiance of the kids outside. I know it's not 1995 anymore. <laughs> I understand. Let me ho- let me hold on to my youth, guys. <laughs> but but you 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 set the ambiance and you watch this you watch this movie because in isolation, if you watch this movie, it is it is a a freaked out what if tale of what if everything that could go wrong on a Halloween night did go wrong as far as, you know, a, a, a crazed killer going off and killing people on, on this night. You know what I mean? Totally. Um, I will say, wait, are we doing recommendations or not? Can I say one? <laughs> yeah, go for it. I thought I would throw out my favorite John Carpenter movie is the thing. Yeah. Oh yeah. And so if you want, Another, if you haven't seen The Thing, that's another sort of like unexplained evil force type movie. <laughs> yeah. But um, the visual, uh, the practical visual effects in that film are beyond insane. Nowadays, it would probably all be done with, with computer graphics, but then it was done practically. And the stuff they do is mind bending. And um so anyway, the thing is is one of my favorite. I, I don't know if you class. I guess it's a, kind of a horror sci-fi. Um, yeah. Tons of suspense though, and a weird ending, and I love it. <laughs> yeah, I, it's it's a different type of horror. It's still horror. It's it's horror in the same way that uh, Alien is is horror. Yeah. You yeah. know, it, it, I so so when you go outside of just like Halloween. And you go into John Carpenter's other work, especially The Thing, you're going to realize that pretty unanimously, he is an excellent storyteller. He is just, and honestly, for for my money, one of the best at creating ambiance. You know what I mean? And that's that's one of the things that that if you make me if if you make me pause and 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 present something that feels lived in 
and feels immersive and you're giving me into a, a glimpse into whatever this world is you know what i mean whether it's something that is a representation of late 70s teenage culture and this force of evil coming through or you're on some whacked out hillbilly bullshit or you're on any of these other examples or things or or, or beats that we've talked about if you create something that feels lived in and feels like it has stakes, you've got me bought in, sold out. You've got me. And, and the thing I could, I could go on for another 45 minutes on the thing itself, because that movie is, is one of those that it, it, makes you it creates ambiance it makes you feel things along with the characters and the commentary aspect of it that's to me from that generation and i'd love to get your two cents on this from this generation that we're talking about here this is where commentary in movies was at its peak i don't care if you want to tell a story if you want to tell a message in your story it's your story to tell whatever message you want to tell your uh, you want to tell in your story if it, if i don't jive with it fine it's not for me then but but if you want to tell a story tell a story but it's it's presenting it in a way while still actually telling a story and not just saying hey come to my TED talk about X, Y, or Z topic. It might be an important topic. It might be something that has to be talked about, but at least be willing to tell a story around it. Yeah. I, what do you think, um, Joe, like, has your, what do horror movies do for you? Like, what is it you think, like, draws you to them? And has that changed since you've been a, a Christian? Oh, for sure. So, um, I I was first introduced to Nightmare 3 when I was 6, 6 or 7, something like that. Super young, way too young. Um and then that turned into Nightmare 1 and and so on and so forth. Um it was it was Car Crash TV. It was the same kind of thing that drew me to wrestling at the time or Saturday morning cartoons or something like that, which probably speaks to something deeply rooted weird that, that we're talking about slasher movies in the same context as Saturday morning cartoons, but the nineties were a hell of a time. Um, but you, that, that to me was the thing at first, then it became more about analyzing the stories and the characters and and almost psychologically approaching it and then that kind of gave way into allowing for to to quote um one of our esteemed hosts pastor will um it, it acts as an avenue to hold the to hold the mirror up you know what i mean and and to ask ask questions and and all of those kinds of things um so yeah i would absolutely say that it changed and that's that's i've definitely settled on more of the philosophic philosophical cerebral rather than carnage candy and my 100 <laughs> percent, yeah yeah my my taste for that has changed along with that that sliding scale of what i appreciate like i looked at uh, I, I came out of um scream 2022 saying the practical effects like the old school horror fan of me thought the practical effects done in that movie were just aces just absolutely phenomenal but that meant that you watched a movie of slow mean kills and that the first time i watched it did something to my spirit like that was i needed i needed a minute i needed a breather from from horror movies after watching that movie the first time and so yeah i think that's definitely changed over the years yeah that's really good that's that's a cool answer yeah i'm definitely not um as drawn to stuff that's straight up like the the main the main focus of the evil is around violence. Um, I, I I find that like, you know, sometimes they call it torture porn, like the soft films. I, I won't, I won't go there because my draw, I think is to, uh, to TV and films that sort of call attention to like what lies beneath everyday life. Like, I think we all feel like a deeper sense of meaning in our experiences and a tug between good and evil going on within ourselves, within communities, different, different things. So like, the the horror sci-fi genres take make these very creative metaphors to to draw out those things. Um, 
to make like a theological point, maybe to like kind of close this out is like, I feel like I, the, the theological tradition that I was raised in the church tradition I was raised in was very, very focused on individual internal evil and very Mm -hmm. much focused on that. And that in the last few years I've had to, so it's actually like psychologically easier to believe that God's mad at you than that God loves you. Right. Right. And, (laughs) and I, and you know, the apostle Paul in one of the letters, I forget which epistle says like his prayer is for the church. Maybe it's um, Ephesians or something to know how deep and broad God's love is for them. And when I think about that being his like main, it, it it felt like to me growing up, the main goal was for me to know how bad of a sinner I was, not how much God loved me. And so in the last few years, I've had to swing the pendulum to sort of like focusing on that a little bit. And then a lot of the social problems that we've, that have been brought to the surface in the last few years, the social justice issues, um, George Floyd and everything, it's kind of shift and COVID stuff that has everything like on this world scale, the, the attention has been brought to systems, kind of evil systems that are how, that are a product of how connected we all are. And so I don't know what I'm trying to say exactly that, um, you know, is the evil when I was younger, I would probably think like, oh, this horror movie makes me reflect on the evil in me. But I also think about the evil that's out there, you know, and, you don't have to just think about, it doesn't have to, I'm not saying it has to be one or the other. I'm just saying that like over, over time, it's, it's sort of shifted for me into where I think, where I'm thinking about where the evil is and where I think it's important for me to reflect as a person of faith about the evil, you know, that exists, you know, but anyway, hope that made sense. It did. It did. Um, (laughs) So, so to throw this out there for, for all of you current uh, Halloween fans, um, Every a lot of the themes that you just brought up, Sari, are part of why I appreciate part of part of what I do appreciate about Halloween ends. I've been vocal in in what I thought was wrong with the movie, but 18 kills and ends all ask this question of what evil is the evil out outward is evil created or is it born all of that kind of stuff. And that to me is fascinating. Having lived this whole life and being somebody who's now going through the process of becoming a pastor, having lived this whole other life separate from Jesus and understanding what makes up the real world and what the real world is like and all of that, um, I think brings, allows me the, um, the, the, ability to with full faith be willing to ask the questions of of what what evil is people in making choices free will all of that sort of thing and the the influence of the world and spiritual forces and everything that goes into this very very deep very very dynamic conversation of morality and all of that kind of stuff that really should never be soundbited and and presented in a very short form way because it is such a dynamic conversation that anytime and I'm I'm speaking from from my experience base anytime that I've heard somebody try and present a distilled down version of good versus evil or what evil is people tend to get hurt as a result of it. Just general rule of thumb. And I think when you talk about the individual and you talk about evil and you talk about all of those things, yes, we have to reconcile. We have to reconcile sin nature and all of that kind of stuff. But when you take that, speaking in terms of theology, if you take that ball too far down the down the field, then you are inadvertently making statements about God and God's character. And and it and I understand that a lot of the time when when this when this overstatement on evil gets made, it's it's made with people's intentions being to glorify God. But you need to really extrapolate out what it is that you're saying about those kinds of things when you make a definitive statement about what evil is or what morality is or what people are or whatever. Um, because it's not, it's not simple. 
people are not simple. And and that's that's what I find intriguing about those conversations is is people aren't simple and, and being able to see the the tapestry of what I now know to be the work of God, it's fascinating because the Bible does for all of the the the, the verses that get quoted about how how you know the heart is evil or or Bible verses about the the heart being good and this and that, it's we're never called to uniformity. We are called to unity. Those are two vastly different things. And that goes back to the artist mindset with that sort of thing. And and that goes back to a conversation that um Josh and I had on the Patreon uh, on the Patreon feed about how when you watch these movies, watching these movies is not inherently sinful. And moreover, if you watch these movies, a lot of the time these movies ask daring questions, and it's those kinds of questions that, as a Christian, you should be asking about the world around you. They, those, those, you should be pushing at the boundaries of what this world of what this world is. God created it, and and if especially if you are in the position of saying, "I give my life to God," I I He is Lord over my life, then it is a form of respect to the King to know how His creation works. Amen. I'm just going to say that. <laughs> I think, yep, let's not oversimplify it. It doesn't do anyone any good. Let's give each other grace and um, not, it, it is tempting to go for simple, easy answers, but simple, easy answers are almost never the whole story. So yeah, yeah I'll just leave it at that for now because we don't have a time to talk about a whole like free will conversation. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but you know, it's funny, so, the movie does allude to that because the one like smarty pants comment that she answers in the classroom is about fate, right? Yeah. And she, she com- contrasting two authors, one who thinks fate is like a part of na- the natural world and one that thinks it's part of the spiritual world, which is very yeah. true. Even like, even like the science, people in the sciences and people in theology debate about how free our will is. So it's, um, yeah. it's a fascinating question. Let's it not is. oversimplify it. <laughs> it is. And there's and there's beauty in having those dynamic conversations well. There's yep. it's it's fun to have those conversations well. Even if you don't agree, then then dare to learn something. Dare to dare to hear somebody else's perspective. It's not like you're gonna you're you're gonna suddenly, you know, be able or never be able to think the way that you think ever again if you come across somebody who disagrees with you. Like so what if somebody disagrees with you? Hundred percent. And yeah, I'll throw out a little um a little, uh, so my day job is with a, a nonprofit that helps Christians engage the sciences. And um, if you go to theopsych.com, Theo is in theology, T H E O, psych, P S Y C H, theopsych.com, there's a class on there called Theopsych Academy about will, beliefs, and decision making. And it's a Christian introduction to the science of, you know, biases, how the neuros- neuroscience thinks about free will and stuff like that. So if you're into getting more deep in the weeds of that conversation, it's actually kind of a cool resource that, that we I put together there if you want to check it out. Shameless plug. Cool. cool. Thanks for having me on, Joe. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for joining us, and thank you all for joining us for the SG Drive-In. As you guys are hearing this, it is right around the day proper, so be safe. Have Happy fun. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. Stay spooky. We'll catch you next time. Remember, we are all a chosen people, a geekdom of priests. This was an Anazal Ministries podcast. If you enjoyed this show and would like to learn more about our network, be sure to check out the Anazal Ministries podcast network.